It is a privilege and a pleasure to be with you all this morning. I give you greetings from the Seventh Reformed Church in Grand Rapids, where I'm a member. I, I serve occasionally. But I just want to thank you all for the privilege of bringing God's Word to you and worshiping with you all. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 75, we're continuing in this series through the Psalms. And it's another in a series of Psalms by Asaph. Psalm chapter 75. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the word, Lord, in prayer. Lord, our God, we're not here to add information to our intellect. We're here to encounter you, the living God. Father, we plead with you by your Spirit, communicate your might, communicate your glory, communicate your presence and power to us this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus that every sinner here, those that have not trusted in Jesus Christ, would put all their trust in your Son and would be saved. We pray that the backslider, those that are in compromise, would be healed and would look to God, the living God, and cleave to you. We pray that you would feed your sheep through the word. Be with us, we plead with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if God were to keep himself from judging the wicked, we know that he'd be one of them. If God were to just pass over the sins of the wicked and forgive them just out of free love, without any punishment, we know as a congregation that God would be unjust. If we even have a cursory knowledge of the scriptures, we know that God is displayed as the just judge, as Genesis 18 says, of all the earth and the punisher of sin. But is God's righteousness, is his dealing with sin, and the way we've read in verse 8 and all throughout Psalm 75, is it a thing to be praised? Should our hearts leap within us, our affections be stirred? Should we cherish this God who pours out the cup of his wrath on the wicked for eternity? Notice that, that scripture reading from Revelation 14 that we read. God draining his cup upon the wicked. Is that something worthy of praise? Should we cling to him because justice has been satisfied in Jesus Christ on our behalf? Yes, but what about clinging to him for being the righteous punisher of all wickedness? Why do we sing to him for this? That's the context of this psalm. He says, we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. Then talks about the judgment of God and then ends in, in verse 9, but I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. So how can we sing to God for the just judgment of the wicked? Well, Embassy Church, if there's anything I want to make clear to you this morning, it's that the expression of God's wrath and justice is surely worth the raising up of our affections, the cherishing of God as our God, and our praise and worship. 
We'll see that this psalm is a song of thanksgiving and praise for this very action. The point of this psalm, Psalm chapter 75, is this. This is the point of this psalm. God is to be praised for his just judgment of the wicked and the righteous. I'm going to repeat that. The point of Psalm chapter 75 is this. God is to be praised for his just judgment of the wicked and the righteous. And just to be transparent with you, a congregation, we all know, as I said from the beginning, that God is a God of righteousness and love, a God of justice and mercy. My hope is not to add to your information about God or for us to just leave and be confirmed in what we've always thought of God. Yeah, God's just, God's loving. But it's for our hearts to be raised up in adoration towards this just God and to praise him for his just justice. For your hearts to be stirred within you, for you to take God as your treasure, uh, to be lifted up in fear and trembling, but uh, loving him and praising him all the more. My hope is that we would cry out with the saints in Revelation chapter 19 verses 1 to 2, Hallelujah, salvation and honor and glory and strength be to our Lord, our God, for his just judgments are true and righteous. So we're going to look at Psalm 75 in three distinct points. From verse 1, we're going to look at thanksgiving. So point 1 from verse 1, thanksgiving. From verses 2 to 5, warning. And from verses 6 to 10, judgment. So again, verse 1, thanksgiving. Verses 2 to 5, warning. And from verses 6 to 10, judgment. But first for thanksgiving. If you look at Psalm 75, verse 1, you see Asaph, the psalmist, giving thanks to God. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. Now, you all know from the faithful teaching of this church that all of the psalms and, and psalm and the book three of the psalms are related. They're related to one another, and they have a thematic connection. These Ten psalms from Psalm 73 to Psalm 83 are all written by Asaph and are unified in theme. But let's look back to the two psalms that you had heard sermons from, from Phil and David. Psalm 73, Asaph crying out to God because the wicked are prospering and the righteous seem to be cast down. Remember how he begins that psalm and the content of it. He says, I've cleansed my heart in vain because the wicked prosper. They get richer and richer, they do better and better, and the righteous get poorer and poorer. The wicked pleasure themselves and then die. Or Psalm 74, Asaph cries out, Oh God, why do you cast us off forever at the destruction of the temple and the enemies rushing in? But this psalm begins differently from those two previous psalms. It begins with emphatic praise towards God, repeated praise and thanksgiving towards God. And as I mentioned earlier, it's in the context of God's just judgment. The Israelites are experiencing their enemies declaring victory over them. And Asaph is praising God for that future judgment that God would bring upon all the wicked of the earth. But notice something peculiar in that first verse. Asaph says, we give thanks to you for your name is near. Now what does Asaph mean by giving praise to God for God's name being near? Is God's name and just saying his name, Yahweh and Jesus, just some kind of lucky charm or something that when we say just emits power and things start to happen? Jesus, Yahweh. What's meant by that? Now you'll see some people say, What's meant by it is God's presence is near God's people to deliver them. I think we have to go a bit deeper to understand what Asaph means when he says, I praise you for your name being near. And to do that, turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 to 7. And just the context of Exodus chapter 34. Moses is pleading with God and interceding for the Israelites and then asks God, Show me your glory. And this is what God does. Beginning in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud 
and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So dear friends, God's name being near means nothing less than God's person, God's attributes, who God is at his core, being near Asaph and the people of Israel. But more than that, notice, it's the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, and visiting the iniquities of sinners upon them. So in other words, it's, it's the theme of this psalm. Asaph is praising God for exalting, as we see in verse 10, the righteous. He lifts them up from lowliness, but at the same time cuts off the horns of the wicked, judges the wicked, punishes the wicked. It's that God who lifts up the righteous, loving, steadfast mercy, forgiveness, and judges the wicked will by no means clear the guilty. So it's Asaph praising God as this full God, all that God's name entails and the nearness of that full God to him. These people, the Israelites, cling to the revelation of God through the declaration of his name and rejoice and praise him, saying, your name is near. That one will come and visit iniquity with judgment. And judgment is near because God's name is near. Now, Christian, just to apply this particularly to you, this might be obvious, but is the name of God, in other words, is his revealed character, according to the scriptures, your delight? Do you have a God that you've made in your own image? Or you've been saved by Christ and you have this kind of mystical notion that God loves you and God is good, and you pray and serve or are comforted by this God in your own image? As one preacher said, sometimes... We devise a God that looks more like Santa Claus than he does Yahweh. So do you use and do you take up the scriptures and all that God has revealed of himself to be your comfort and to be your grounds for communion with God, his justice, his holiness, his love? Is that your grounds for intimacy with God? Is the revealed character of God the subject of your praise? Does the revelation of his person lift up your affections? Is who God is the very thing that lifts out of you praise and adoration? Is the revealed character of God the subject of your praise in the slightest? Asaph, as David, and Psalm 23 would say, I shall not want, for this God and all that he is is near me. So knowledge drives intimacy with God. But secondly, is all of God's name your delight? Now remember, This is a psalm, an Asaph praising God for his judgment of the wicked. And friends, we have to embrace all God is, according to the scriptures, as Christians, to have intimate access with him and to commune with him in truth. Now again, I'm not saying you don't know that God isn't righteous. I'm asking if in your heart you cherish him as righteous and the judge of the wicked, that one that pours out the cup of his wrath upon the wicked. Are we embracing a truncated God? In other words, for comfort, we go to Exodus chapter 34 and we focus on the love of God and the mercy of God for us and we kind of just leave off that second part of that chapter because it doesn't apply to me. Friends, if you're doing that in your heart, You're embracing a God cut in half. It's almost like this. You you, you go to, let's say, Yosemite or some, some park with mountains and nature. You go there and instead of gazing upon that mountain in its beauty, you look at its reflection in a lake with all its ripples and you can't see clearly its beauty. Or you take a picture of that mountain and it's pixelated. You take it home and you you rely on that pixelated mountain for a reference to the mightiness of that mountain. And friends, to look only at our pet favorites of God's attributes, his love, his grace, while neglecting others, his wrath and his justice, 
is to behold a God cut in half. It's to look at the beach without seeing the Mount Everests, the lush hills and valleys, the meadows and forests, the deserts and tundras of God's glorious person. Now listen to this quote by a writer named A.W. Pink on the attributes of God. Listen to this, quote, Our readiness or our hesitancy to meditate upon the wrath of God becomes a sure test of our heart's true attitude toward him. If we do not truly rejoice in God for what he is in himself, and that because of all the perfections which are resident in him, then how can we say the love of God dwells in us? Each of us needs to be most prayerfully on his guard against devising an image of God in our own thoughts, which is patterned after our own evil inclinations. God said of old, you thought that I was like yourself. If we rejoice not at the remembrance of his holiness, as Psalm 97 says, if we rejoice not to know that in a soon coming day, God will make a most glorious display of his wrath by taking vengeance upon all who now oppose him, it's proof positive that our hearts are not in subjection to him. So Christian, I I want you to cherish God for all he is, a complete God of wrath and vengeance and justice and love and mercy as a true anchor and a true ballast when persecution comes, relying on that God of vengeance to take vengeance for his own namesake and to pardon sinners that have wronged you or wronged his name. So it's thanksgiving and praise for this loving and judging God being near his people. And we see we have to praise God for all he is. But now we turn to verses 2 to 5 of Psalm 75. And look there with me again. From verse 2, at the set time that I appoint, this is God speaking, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it's I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. So friends, just looking at this psalm from verses 2 to 5, God is speaking directly to the wicked. And in verse 10, your ESV Bibles might not have quotations around that, but that's God speaking as well. God speaking to the wicked and the righteous. Now just thinking back to Psalm 73 and 74, the rich prospering, the wicked prospering, sinners prospering, we have to ask ourselves, looking at this, will the wicked prosper? Will they succeed? And the answer is an emphatic no. God says, at the set time I appoint, I will judge with equity. A Christian, you know, according to the New Testament, Jesus said that his father had set a time appointed of judgment where God would judge the wicked and the righteous. And this is what this verse is speaking about. It's speaking, yes, about God's judging nations, but God's ultimate judging of the wicked. How do we know that? Well, just moving ahead in verse 8, Asaph says, he pours out from it that cup of wrath and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So there's a time where God brings all of the wicked, every single wicked person, to drain from the dregs his cup of wrath. But God, notice in Psalm 75, sets the time and man has no say. Look at that. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. So friends, no matter what you do, God has set this fixed, immovable day of judgment for the righteous and the wicked, and you have absolutely no say about moving that time of judgment. It reminds me of a story I'd heard a pastor share about some people, uh, some atheists, some wicked, wicked people, going out and golfing. And this, these people had gone on golfing and were mocking God. And one of them, in boldness, uh, told his friends, look, I'm going to prove to you that there's no God. And he stepped back and he cried out, God, if you're real, judge me right now. Strike me with lightning and kill me. Prove that you're real. And obviously, nothing happened. Now, Just as a side note, you might think that that's the love of God preserving this man and not killing him. It's actually the judgment of God. If God had struck that man with lightning, those other men might have repented and believed on Christ. 
But secondly, it's just to, to emphasize that point, that man had absolutely no say in his boldness, in his wickedness, to determine when God would judge him. So, we see that God has set the time of judgment. And we see in verse 3, look there with me, when the earth totters and all its inhabitants, God says, it is I who keep steady its pillars. In God's appointed time, he comes in all of his glory and moral purity and justice. And when he comes, the earth totters. And the Hebrew uses a word here about the people tottering at his coming. The word is really melting. The people melt at the coming of God and his glorious holiness and moral purity. In fact, that word melting is the same word used for the Canaanites when the Israelites came after them to massacre them. They melted in the presence of the Israelites. So I don't know most of you here personally. So I'm assuming that there are people here who have not put their trust in Jesus Christ, who've not been born again of the Spirit of God. If you've not been reconciled to Christ, and if you've not been born again, you will melt at God's coming. And we'll get to that later. Yet for the Christian, the coming of God in his moral purity and glory and holiness is their comfort. It's the answer to their cry, come Lord Jesus. And they're comforted because God in all his holiness is for them. He's to rescue them and give them glorified bodies, free them from sin and bring them into everlasting communion with him. I'm reminded of, of Jonathan Edwards, who was fearful of God's judgment. And he was so fearful as a young man of God's judgment that every time thunder and lightning would happen, he would flee in his room and, and, and be terrified and just kind of shut himself under the covers and wait for the thunder to pass because he went forward looking at God's coming judgment. He knew himself to be a wicked sinner and he knew that God would judge him in justice. But once Edwards got saved. Once Edwards was brought to saving faith in Christ, thunder became the theme of his praise because he saw, as he said, the coming judgment as the coming judgment of his beloved God. And the God who would execute judgment upon sin and the wicked would come to rescue him. He's on that side of God's judgment, the one that's supported by God and brought by God with a strong arm, not, not the part that is punished by him. So that which the Christian has previously feared or been turned off by becomes his delight. So Christian, again, an exhortation to you to exalt yourself in this God, in all of his glory, his moral purity, his holiness. Run to that God. In reading the scriptures, don't think that that's reserved for the wicked. It's reserved for you and your comforts. Go to him and pray this to him. Sing to him in private about his holiness and his glory. Now we come to the center of, of this psalm and, and the most important point under point two. God's direct warning to the wicked. God says to the wicked, I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. I'm sure as you all have gone through the Psalms, you've realized that God makes a radical distinction between two types of people. There's the righteous, and there's the wicked, and there's no in-between. God declares certain people righteous and certain wicked. And friends, there's no grade curve. The distinction between the two is found in their fruit. So in other words, the righteous, as we'll see in examples, are lowly and have no trust in themselves, but find all their righteousness, all their holiness, all their goodness in God alone. And the wicked boast and lift themselves up. So let's just clarify some terms really quickly. What is lifting up the horn? What's speaking with a haughty neck? What's boasting? Well, lifting up of the horn of the wicked is something we see throughout the Old Testament. It's the sense of declaring victory and declaring that one has won, but also a radical declaration of self-confidence. Confidence in one's own self, confidence in one's own work, 
confidence in one's own way of life above submitting to God. Now, I hope you were aware of the scripture readings and their connection to this sermon or this scripture text. As was said by Ed, 1 Samuel 2, Hannah's song and Psalm 75 have tons of similarities. In fact, I encourage you, when you go home, try to just read 1 Samuel 2, 1 to 10, and Psalm 75 and just compare the two. And I believe there's a reason the two are similar. It's this idea of God taking the lowly and exalting him and taking the wicked, those who boast in themselves, and bringing them down. So I have three examples of this. First, Hannah in 1 Samuel 2. You know the, the story of Hannah, do you not? Barren and seeking to have children and mocked by the other wife of her husband. As she was bearing children, she mocked Hannah and tore her down. And Hannah lowly, had no material goods, no trust in anything but God, cried out to God. And God took this lowly Hannah and lifted her up as she sang. You think of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man as these wicked, lifting himself up, trusting in his riches, boasting in his glories. And Lazarus, poor and destitute, no riches on earth, no kind of exaltation. And God lifts up Lazarus and casts down the rich man to Hades. You think of the tax collector and Pharisee in Luke 18, 9-14. That tax collector goes into the temple and lifts up his eyes to heaven. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. And then boasts of his righteousness before God. But then this tax collector comes and beats his breast. He can't even lift up his eyes to heaven. And says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God justifies the one and not the other. So you have that lowly tax collector lifted up and the Pharisee brought down. Now if I could apply that to you particularly, non-Christian, those of you who are not born again, who have not trusted in Christ, is that you? Are you trusting in either your works to bring you before God, your good deeds, or a mixture of God's righteousness, but I'm going to do good in order to be accepted by him? As we'll read in in the later Psalms, or rather later on in this verse, you'll see that God will cut off all your lifting up and will not accept a shred of righteous acts. You know that all your righteous acts, as Isaiah says, are but filthy rags before a holy God. But are you also trusting in success or friends or socializing or material goods and despise the lowliness of Christians who trust in nothing of themselves, but trust in Christ alone. Again, God is warning you specifically, do not boast, do not lift up your horn on high, and don't speak with a haughty neck. So how does God warn? Does God warn just to say, you know, turn or burn, I'm doing my duty in warning you? No. He warns as he does in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. Just listen to this, the heart of God towards the wicked. He says, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. So if you're hearing God pouring out his wrath upon the wicked and that's kind of turning you off, know that God is not giving an accusatory warning towards you, but is begging you, come, turn to me, trust in me. Stop your boasting. Stop your lifting up your wicked horns and turn to me to be saved. We see that God has set up an appointed time of judgment. He said, I've set the time of judgment. But in the meantime, he warns all the boastful, all the wicked to come to him and to trust in him. He calls them to let go of their self-trusting and their proclamation of pride in themselves and to trust in him. And church, he's ordained you in between that declaration of the future judgment and the judgment to go out and preach the gospel to the lost. He's ordained you that they would repent and believe through your preaching. So Christian, just to bring this home, embassy member or visitor that's a Christian, are you imitating God in warning sinners of the judgment in this way, 
I'm not saying that you're not talking about the love of God or the mercies of God, but are you confronting through the law sinners with their sin and their need for a Savior? Do you, like your God, include turning from sin in your gospel preaching? You remember the love of Jesus Christ for the Samaritan woman in John 4. He said, go call your husband. And she said, I have no husband. And then he, he confronted her with her sin of sexual immorality for her good. Christian, you've got to get the scalpel out to do the painful work of showing sinners their sin before reconciling them to a holy God. And non-Christian, do you think God is unfair in this future judgment? He's calling to you directly and personally right now. Stop your boasting. Stop your trusting in yourself and in material goods. Believe on me. So that, that's it for verses 2 to 5. But then this last point of judgment. We see in verses 6 to 7, for not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. So again, that lifting up, putting down we think of Hannah, the, the tax collector, and Lazarus. So, some people are a little bit confused about verses 6 to 7, rightfully so. I think all verse 6 to 7 means is, is that any hope for escape from God's judgment that you think would come from the east or the west, the nations that would deliver you, it's futile. God will judge God is the one who puts down one and lifts up the other, and there's nothing you can do about it. Furthermore, God lifts up and puts down nations. God takes some nations and lifts them up and takes others and brings them down. He controls, as Proverbs 21.1 tells us, the heart of the king. And even in Judges 9, we know that God will send evil spirits to different nations to destroy one another for his glory. So none can lift up, none can bring down, except God in his sovereignty. Then we come to this most precious and most fearful part, the Psalm 75. And if you haven't been listening this sermon, I just encourage you, listen to verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, Asaph says, well mixed. And he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Now we heard in the scripture reading this morning, in Revelation 14, that God will pour out this cup upon the wicked nations, those who have not trusted in him, and they will burn for eternity, and the smoke of their torment will come up to him, and they will be burned in the presence of the Lamb. And like I said, there's no kind of grade curve. It's either righteousness or wicked. And the wicked are destined for this destination. But notice what that verse says about that cup. First of all, that all the wicked will drink it and there will be no exception. That everyone who is apart from Christ, who has not been reconciled to him through the blood of Jesus Christ and his righteousness, will drink from that cup, number one. Number two, they will drink all of it. So that cup is drank to the bottom or to the dregs. There's no kind of alleviation. And thirdly, it's mixed with spices. It's an undiluted drink. So you know, in ancient times, the, the Romans or even Israelites would drink water, wine with some water mixed in it to kind of weaken its strength, to not get drunk as fast. That's the opposite of what's being said here. Its idea of being mixed, as verse 8 says, and the Hebrew says with spices, means that that wine comes full strength. If you could think of a picture, maybe surgery, like just terrible, terrible surgery, without the use of anesthesia. God pouring out this full strength cup of his wrath upon the wicked without any kind of weakness. So this goes back to the question that I asked at the beginning of the sermon. How can we sing praises to God about this kind of judgment? Revelation 11, 17 to 18 says, we'll sing thanks to God for judging the wicked. How can we do that? Are we not called to weep for the lost and to pray for their salvation? Well, first of all, yes, 
God does use our broken, regular prayers for the lost as the means by which he saves sinners to himself. So Christian, God has put you here and put unbelievers around you for you to petition God and to wrestle with him to save the lost around you, and God uses those prayers to save the lost. And yes, remember that God himself doesn't delight himself in the death of the wicked. So how can we sing this song of praise to God? Well, I think the answer is found in Romans chapter 9, verses 21 to 22. If you could turn there, that's the last scripture I'll have you turn to. Romans chapter 9, verses 21 to 22. The background of this chapter is Paul kind of addressing the objections of people who say, how could God make vessels prepared for destruction beforehand? How could God be just and do that? But Paul talks about the display of God's wrath in this way, and I think the answer is found here. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So here's three reasons that I see for why we are able to sing to God for his just judgment of the wicked in this way. Here's three reasons. I'm sure there's more. Three reasons for the sake of time. Number one, it's the display of his power, God's power, in righteous judgment. Without this demonstration of God's wrath, we wouldn't know the glories of his holy righteousness and just judgment toward the wicked, as we said before. And the Christian, if you're a Christian, you cling lovingly to all God's glorious display of his character and person. So his power is put on display for the nations to fear and for his people to look at and worship in trembling and awe. So that's number one, the display of his power and wrath. But second, for the persecuted, it provides rest. Remember, the persecuted are crying to God in the midst of persecution, come Lord Jesus. It's not some pious thing that they're just doing because of tradition. They're crying out because they're being tormented. And not only that, God's name is being profaned in the earth. And they desire that God's name would be lifted up and glorified. So number two, for the persecuted, it provides rest and the vindication of God's name in the earth. God will be just in not letting the persecutors of the church to be acquitted. He'll surely judge them and vindicate his people and his own name. So that's number two. And number three, for the believer, it's the display of the riches of his glorious love. God's mercy and love, separated from his fierce and holy justice, is cheap. But when the Christian sees righteous justice and merciful love meet on the cross, they kiss, as the Proverbs say. He sees what God has saved him from. And he rightfully worships. So first, it's the display of his power and his wrath. Second, it provides the persecuted rest and God's vindication of his name. And third, for the believer, it's a display of the riches of his glorious love. But the point of this portion of Psalm 75 is this. That God takes that wicked cup. He takes the cup filled with his wrath. And he pours it out upon all of the wicked. Maybe if you're not a Christian and you've not come to Christ, you think that the problem with the world is outside yourself. Maybe that's why you trust in politics or in kind of, you know, this politician did things wrong, this kind of administrator does things wrong. But if our party gets in power, they'll do things right. Or maybe you thought the problem is those bad people out there, and I'm good, I'm moral. But non-Christian, if I could convince you of one thing by the power of the Spirit, it's not me, but I pray that the Spirit of God would convince you of this. 
It's that you are the problem. You in your sin and in your disobedience, mocking God and breaking his commandment, you're the problem. It's like this idea of a a villain in an action movie. You have this long thriller and you're waiting for that villain to get his comeuppance. Finally he dies and you just, you breathe a sigh of relief. Thank God. I was terrible. Glad he died. That's you. You're that villain. You've waged war against God by breaking his commandments and his law. And as we said, God's justice demands satisfaction. God knows all of your secret sins and all of your inward wickedness, the things that you've done last night in the dark that no one, you thought no one knew, God saw clearly. Now, is your life, look at your life and examine it, non-Christian. Is your life marked by the fruits of the flesh inwardly? Just look outwardly, inwardly. Adultery, jealousy, fits of anger, gossip, fornication, coveting something else, either the possessions of other, another's wife or husband. Let's take it even deeper. How have you obeyed the first and greatest commandment? Have you loved the Lord your God with all your soul, mind, and strength perfectly in the past day? How about in the past hour? How about in the past minute? Well, this is God's clear demand of the world. Perfect righteousness and his justice demands perfect satisfaction. You will drink of his wrath, sinner, to the bottom. You'll drink it completely. And drinking the bottom of that cup means eternal punishment from a holy God. As we read in verse 10, he'll cut off your horns, all the horns of the wicked, I will cut off. So sinners, where's the hope? Where's the hope for you? Well, there's a provision made. Where does the mention of this cup, the cup mentioned in verse 8 of Psalm 75, where does it take your mind? It ought to take you to a person, Jesus Christ. Listen to Matthew 26, 39. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And John 18, 11, when Peter strikes the ear of Malchus, Jesus stops him and says, shall I not drink the cup that my father has for me? Why did Christ mention a cup? Was it a random reference, just a kind of poetic reference? No, he's referencing this very cup in Psalm 75 and in Jeremiah, the cup of God's righteous wrath. Now, if if you look at who drinks from this cup of wrath, the wicked, and you see Christ saying, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, your will be done, not mine, you think, this isn't right. This cup should be reserved for the wicked and for the unjust, not for the just, not for the pure, not for the holy, not for Christ. And the answer, my friends, is found in this. For our sake, he made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. Jesus drank the very cup of the wrath of God and drank it down to the dregs, to the bottom, for sinners. He would not, he could not be stopped from drinking this cup to the bottom for all wicked sinners who would trust in him who would believe in his name. Christ, the only righteous, he's the only one, according to Psalm 75, who deserved to be lifted up, but he was cut off as the wicked. Even Isaiah 53 says that he cut off, God cut off Jesus from the land of the living, the pure and holy one deserving to be lifted up, treated as the wicked, to transform the wicked into the righteous. Jesus Christ drank from the cup of the wrath of God for all who would believe on him to the very dregs. If you would believe on him, listen to this, non-Christian, if you're here, listen to this, you would not know a drop of God's holy disfavor and indignation. Jesus the righteous, treated as the unrighteous, so that God could declare the wicked righteous and be just himself. Now remember what I said about that cup being mixed with spices. It's strong. It's not diluted. Jesus Christ on the cross was offered a drink. He was offered vinegar mixed with gall. And the purpose of that drink 
was to dull his senses and to make the punishment not so severe that he'd be able to to endure it without the pain. Jesus Christ rejected that drink. And he rejected it for this very purpose. Psalm 75, that mixed drink, full strength. Jesus would be fully conscious, experiencing the full torment of God's wrath. He would not be excused from it. He wouldn't be diluted from it. He drank it to the full. Christ refused the drink and in full consciousness suffered the torments of God's wrath for his people. And again, Jesus pleaded with the Father that this cup filled with the Father's indignation would pass from him. This terrible mixed wine of God's fury was poured out full force upon the Son of God, upon Jesus, so that wicked men would become righteous. We know Jesus drank it to the bottom. How? Because he cried out, it is finished. And as long as he cried that out, there is not a drop for you. So if you think God is severe for proclaiming judgment upon the wicked and that he would pour out his wrath upon you, know that he endured the full strength of God's wrath without that vinegar and gall for you. So trust in this one today. Repent and believe on Christ. God raised him from the dead, showing the world that justice has been satisfied in the cross. Listen to this hymn. Beautiful, beautiful hymn. Listen to these words. Death and the curse were in the cup. O Christ, t'was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. That bitter cup Love drank it up, now blessings draught for me. So, my prayer for those of you who have not been reconciled to Christ and born again is that you would so empty yourselves of all that rubbish, all that nonsense of self-pride, trusting in yourself. Be totally emptied of yourself. Be like the lowly Hannah, the lowly Lazarus, the lowly tax collector, and cling to Christ as your righteousness. Christian, if I could just apply this to you particularly, look to the fact that there is not one drop of divine disfavor for you. Even God's discipline, what seems like God's anger and God's displeasure, is only coming from fatherly love. All of the wrath of God is absorbed in Christ, and all God's dealings with you are in love and tenderness and kindness. And just as a side note, you have absolutely no excuse from pursuing God with all your might, from reading the scriptures with all your might, from delighting yourself in this God with all your might, because God has taken away every bit of separation between you and his presence and holiness. Christian, a different cup is given to you. It's the cup in Psalm 23, pouring forth, pouring over, filled with the goodness of God for you and the cup of the new covenant in his blood. It's the cup of salvation found in Psalm 116. Drink from it, commune with Christ. Be intimate in communion with him and fellowship with with him. So nothing ought to bar you in greater pursuit of God and holiness. And lastly, just in verse 10, we see the destiny of the redeemed righteous. So we, we talked about the horns of the wicked. They're all going to be cut off. The horns of the righteous will be lifted up. Christian, if all your righteousness is in Christ, you have not lifted up your own horn as the wicked have. God lifts you up. And God will lift you up into glory for all eternity. As the sinner will know the unending wrath of God, the Christian will know unending fellowship and communion and intimacy and greater and greater revelation of the knowledge of Jesus Christ and his holiness and his purity. He'll open it up to you for eternity and he'll give you his throne to share with him and a glorified body free from sin. So in conclusion, friends, blessed be God's name for his judgment of the wicked for his glory. And blessed be his name for taking the wicked, because that's the only way the wicked can be righteous, taking those who are wicked and turning them into the righteous through his blood for his namesake. Maybe just two closing applications. Number one, 
Take up all that this God is for your treasure. Again, we know God is righteous, God is loving, but take up all that he is for your treasure. Don't ignore the parts of the prophets that speak about God's judgment and just kind of go to the parts of his love for your treasure. This God is on your side. Delight in all he is and exalt yourself in the God of fierce judgment who will judge the wicked. This is your God. This is your Father. Embrace him and treasure him. And secondly, for the Christian, don't envy the lifting up of the wicked. Like the psalmist Asaph in Psalm 73, don't be duped about the pleasures of the wicked. Don't think that it's perhaps more worthwhile to engage in the joys of the wicked and the non-Christian. Think about all that God has given you in Christ. He's given you an anointing from the Holy One that you would understand all his word. He's given you the spirit of prayer and intimate access with him and communion with him. He's given you fellowship with one another and membership in this local church, discipleship and hearing the preached word of God. Don't count that rubbish compared to the nonsense that the wicked lift themselves in. And third, for the sinner, put all your saving trust in the Son of God and his death, resurrection, his life for sinners like you. Amen. Let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Lord, uh, we know that this was delivered in weakness, but oh God, we do pray that the tone of this message, your wrath being poured out, would sit in the hearts of non-Christians, those who are young here and are only here because of their parents. I pray that they would trust in you. And those who have not come face to face with you, bring them to saving trust in you. And Lord, for the Christian, we do pray that you'd cause us to treasure your son, love him, be intimate with him and commune with him for drinking the full cup of God's wrath for wicked, unrighteous sinners like us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.